Progressive presents The Sounds of the Old World. The year is 2019, and someone is getting up to use the bathroom at the stadium. Excuse me? Excuse me? Oh, sorry. Excuse me? You mind if I just squeeze by here? This has been The Sounds of the Old World. Brought to you by Progressive, where drivers can still switch and save like it's 2019. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. HD you are listening to a Mint production. Brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hello everyone. Welcome to another edition of Capital Calculus. The show which focuses on the intersection of politics and economics. Something that is critical in democracies like India, especially in influencing what the little guy gets or does not get. Every week, this show will explore this intersection to try and give you a fresh perspective on the week that was. I am your host, Anil Padmanabhan. The Goods and Services Tax Council is due to meet next week. It is the federal body overseeing this indirect tax. The run-up suggests the 42nd meeting will be very stormy. Fears are it will abandon the principle of consensus, the guiding principle for 40 meetings. States believe the union government is trying to walk back its pledge, the promise to reimburse states for losses in GST collections. The centre is equally miffed. It believes the states are not being fair, conveniently ignoring the COVID fallout something that has knocked the bottom out of the economy, buried the national exchequer in red. In short, the trust deficit between the centre and states has widened alarmingly. Pre-existing political fault lines have only made it worse. Something has to give. Listen to Thomas Isaac, the feisty finance minister from Kerala for speaking to NDTV. People have lost any sense of grace and statesmanship. We are dealing with state governments. We are as much a part of this federal system as a union government. They are undermining Indian federal structure. They are destroying essential trust that there must be between the union and the states. How do anybody accept the state, central government for its words? The frustration and anger in Isaac's tone can't be missed. The problem is that this divide is not just restricted to GST. It was the same with the new farm laws. They were designed to unlock the harvest, sale and storage of agricultural produce, something that should have been acceptable to everyone. Yet, some states like Punjab reacted very harshly. The differences are piling up, testing India's federal polity at a very inopportune time. For one, it will distract from the collective fight against COVID. Second, it will jeopardize much-needed second-generation reforms like agriculture, critical to unlock the Indian economy's potential. All of these fall in the realm of states, making their buy-in a precondition for its success. Have things reached a point of no return? To understand this and more, I spoke to Ratin Roy, who was till recently the head of NIPFP. He has since moved to ODI, the London-based think tank. He took over 
as Managing Director, Research and Policy. I began by asking him his initial thoughts on the trust deficit. The trust deficits between the centre and the states have been going up more or less since the two things happened, in my view. One is the award of the 14th Finance Commission, which increased the tax devolution to 42%, but removed most of the grants. That looked like it meant that the states would get more money. But in practice, that did not happen. The states only got 34% or less by the FI 2020. And this is because what the center started doing was imposing cesses, which are not shareable with the states. So that was, in a sense, breach of trust one. Breach of trust two was the terms of reference of the 15th Finance Commission, which made the assumption that the states indulged in wasteful expenditure and not the center. Because one of the terms of reference was that the commission had to look at unproductive or wasteful expenditure by the states and curb it. And that sounded highly unfair. Breach of trust three was when the planning commission was abolished and the Niti Aayog was set up. Effectively, all the relationships between the center and the states became administrative ones. And the Niti Aayog began to do things like defining aspirational districts, working directly with district magistrates, line departments began to effectively communicate without any political input directly with state administrations. So the political element in that relationship went down very sharply, whether intentionally or not, I don't, with the end of the planning commission and the establishment of Niti Aayog, because I don't think it's anyone's case today that Niti Aayog is anything more than an arm of the central government. That does not appear to be, in my view, state ownership. The final nail in the coffin was, the, sorry, the penultimate nail in the coffin was the lockdown. And in the lockdown, the invocation of the Disaster Management Act, where the center began issuing guidelines to states, which were patently issued first and then consultations happened later. The consultations consisted largely of the center lecturing the states on what to do. And the final nail in the coffin came when, far from giving the states more money to deal with the crisis on the front lines, the center defaulted on its commitment to pay GST compensation, citing bureaucratic reasons, which I think are spurious. The last two, plus the recent non-consultative attempt to uh, introduce bills on agriculture, which is normally thought of as a state subject. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong constitution, but the general impression is that agriculture is a state subject. So you would have expected some consultation, public consultation and debate before those measures were implemented, but they were. I'm not saying whether they're good measures or not. So you see the states have a lot to lose trust about. Going back to what you just said, the cess is not anything new. I mean, these things have been happening for a long time. The 13th Finance Commission, of which you were part of, had actually done a separate section on how this should be given up. So it is not something you can put at the door of this government, right? With one important exception, up to the 13th Finance Commission, the total devolution of the states was 34% revenue, right? The tax revenue devolution plus about 5 to 6% grants. The, fifth, the 14th Commission removed all grants. And therefore, the impact of the continuous rise in cess was that the total revenues accruing to the states went down from 42, which it was supposed to be, to 34, which was lower than at any point in the 13th Finance Commission. So while all, all governments have had a bad habit with cess, the problem was exacerbated by this government, continuing and indeed amplifying the policy of, I would call it, robbing the states, by imposing cess without the corresponding ameliorative effect of grants being there. Ratin, uh, the problem is that this escalation 
of tensions between center and states is now jeopardizing the gst new federal compact which is created by states giving up taxes the right to tax and what some call it the pooling of sovereignties that great experiment is now under jeopardy so are you aren't you worried i don't think it's under jeopardy i think what is under jeopardy is the financial credibility of the center as the sovereign which is far more serious as i understand the situation finance minister arun jaitley committed on the floor of the house to pay a gst compensation cess and that was to be financed through this fund and the fund has fallen short now there were several grand bargains that the center could have made if it was not doing this top down it could have reached out to the to the states and committed for instance to uh, make this payment in a staggered way consistent with availability of funds it could have allowed the states to borrow interest free and that would have solved the problem until such time as there was enough money in the cess fund to pay instead what the government did was it hit behind a technical and i think wrongly a technical provision in the act which said that the compensation shall be paid out of the compensation cess fund that fund word is very important arguing as a bureaucrat nothing prevented the center nothing from transferring money from the consolidated fund which is uh, you know of india to the public account fund which is the gst compensation cess having got that out of the way if the center didn't have the money to do it they could have said look you can borrow and we will open for you a wma window which will roll over every year which will be interest free why would that be important because you see when the states go and borrow from the uh, from the market then who makes uh, who owns the interest the banking system who owns the banking system the government of india so the government of india indirectly makes money when states borrow and that is egregiously wrong equally if the borrowing was done directly by rbi to monetizing or otherwise then it's so fact that the interest paid on that borrowing accrues to rbi as profit and therefore since the sole shareholder of rbi is the central government potentially has dividend or surplus that stays in the central government's books so i think that is where the trust deficit is it is not so much about gst states have committed to gst and now i think it is important that the council work to understand that the gst was not a revenue neutral rate a revenue neutral gst it was revenue deficient that has been exacerbated by poor performance by the revenue department and therefore they need to come up with a sensible structure of rate so that conversation is still possible but that conversation has been uh, has been has been interrupted by this loss of credibility in the center's word as the financial sovereign despite the existence of many options to solve this problem it's not that the government had no option as i've just pointed out and that what is to be fair uh, the union government has never said it will not pay the 14% which was committed to in the grand bargain uh, in fact uh, in an interview with mint in may the finance minister was on record saying she would honor that commitment so it is a question that uh, it's not a question of not paying it's largely a question about Uh, when they will pay so the confusion is arisen because it is presumed that the government will not pay so if i am a borrower from a bank and i default on my commitment and i say i don't intend to default i'll pay you later i'm a defaulter one two then i ask that company why can't you pay me and the company says i can't pay you but what you can do is i'll give you permission somehow to borrow more why could the center not just have borrowed the money why could the center Fair not have WMA window. It is not as if the center did not have options to honor its commitment in the present tense. The center chose not to honor its commitment in the present tense. 
Okay, so what you're saying is that the center should have honored the 14% by either using a WMA or borrowing on behalf of the state, so whichever way. But they should yeah, have maintained the 14%. So at, at this time, the situation is that every rupee the states borrow, this the, the government of India makes money. Do you feel that these differences are now acquiring a political hue and uh, economics is not uh, driving, uh, uh, driving the debate anymore? Economics has not featured for a long time now in the strategic priorities that the central government has chosen to invest its political capital. Therefore, I do not believe economics is driving this debate because it begs the obvious question and not somebody who believes that the only time you implement reforms is in a crisis. There is absolutely no reason for a government in its second term with a large majority to not do in the sphere of economics what it seems to have done so effectively in the sphere of home affairs to complete and finish and commence reforms. And therefore, questions are bound to be asked in a situation where everybody is cash trapped, institutions are uh, fragile because of COVID. And, every, uh, and, and again, the question of competence here, you know perfectly well that to implement agricultural reforms will require the buy-in and acquiescence of states. So unlike what Mr. Jaitley used to do, where was the political capital invested in getting that buy-in? Now, the answer to that is twofold, I guess. That if, if the BJP ruled states, are able to, plus possibly the AIADNK, Bihar doesn't count, they don't even have an APMC, are able to implement these important second generation agricultural reforms, which in principle I like, I may pick on an item or two, then the reforms will benefit farmers there and then the other states will follow suit. Remember the FRBM, that's what happened. And then there were holdouts, Kerala was a holdout, West Bengal was a holdout, they came on board eventually. So if that is the Campbell, I don't know. But there is a problem there, of course, that is the major procurement that takes place happens in Punjab and Haryana. And therefore, to a large extent, the extent to which these reforms will be successful is contingent on what happens in those states. And therefore, that conversation with those states was all the more necessary. And what we in fact have in Punjab is the BJP's uh, NBA is, is an NDA partner on this issue withdrawn from the NDA. That means that even they were not consulted. That I find very odd. I find it very odd political management of reforms. Is a final question, is there, you see a way out of this impasse? I think it would be very seemly for the Prime Minister to put himself in the shoes of a Chief Minister today, as he was for many years, and ask what would be his expectations in terms of the central government reaching out to reverse this process of hierarchical federalism that he would buy into, and then to go ahead and do it. You heard Ratin. In his blunt, no-holds-barred style, Ratan puts the onus on the union government. In a way, he's right. The centre is, after all, the anchor of the federation, the first among equals. But remember, it takes two hands to clap. It is not the first time, neither will it be the last time, that the centre and states have differed. It is the very nature of federalism. In a democracy, national goals may not align with local objectives of states. The trick is to manage these frictions without a serious fissure, especially since there are no winners in this face-off. Worse, there will only be one loser, India. That's all for today. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do share your feedback and ideas. You can reach me on Twitter at Capital Calculus or on Facebook and Instagram at HT Smartcast. I'll be back next week with a new episode of Capital Calculus. Till then, stay safe. This was a Mint production.
Connection. Brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. I'm Annie Apple, and I'm here to invite you to come and listen to my new podcast series, Raising April. It's the most intimate sports-related conversations you will hear. Each week, we explore the journeys of some of your favorite NFL players through the eyes of those that know them best. From Joe Burrow, DeAndre Hopkins, Miles Garrett, Ezekiel Elliott, Nick and Joey Boza, just to name a few. With exclusive insights and information, we leave no stone unturned. Subscribe now to Raising a Pro on your favorite podcast app.